This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Dr. Anthony Eames sits down with Dr. Matthew Costello, who serves as the vice president and senior historian for the David Rubenstein National Center for White House History. They discuss Dr. Costello's new book, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture, and how the history of presidential funerals and mourning changed over time. Welcome Reaganism listeners. I'm joined here today by Matthew Costello, senior historian and vice president of the White House Historical Association and co-editor of a new book, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. You can get it anywhere fine books are sold out with the University of Virginia Press. As always or on occasion, I'm your guest host, Anthony Eames, Director of Scholarly Initiatives at the Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Matthew, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. It's good to be here. Uh, Hopefully uh, there's no other specters or ghosts that are going to intermediate. And uh, (laughs) for those of you you that don't know, we have recorded this before, uh, but it seemed like there was some kind of ghostly interference so it's it's good to be back to have a mulligan <laughs> we can only assume that some deceased president was upset with our podcast and, or perhaps Stephen decatur uh because right. i am i am in his house currently and uh thus far everything seems to be in working order but stay tuned that's right and matt is our neighbor at the white house historical association just across the street so let's see if we can get this one on air i think the first question that we like to ask with these types of conversations of course is why this book you know what what was it that's that said to you that you know you and your contributors that uh, now is the moment where we need to understand a little bit better the significance of mourning our presidents well the the idea for the book uh really began uh, with the immediate aftermath of the passing of george hw bush in 2018 now, I had had an earlier interest in presidential death and mourning. My first book was about George Washington's tomb in Mount Vernon. So I was already sort of into that debate and conversation and historiography. Uh, but to sort of watch this process play out in real time here in Washington, D.C., and also across the country, um, you know, it sort of started to beg the question, Is are these things that we're seeing unique? Are they different? Uh, what are the parallels that have occurred over time between different centuries, decades, uh, different political leaders from either party? And you know what role have Americans as citizens played in this process as participants in the mourning process? And so my co-editor, Dr. Lindsay Trubinsky, and I took the HW funeral, and we wanted to apply that to a variety of different uh, presidents and former presidents who preceded H.W. Bush. And so we put out a call. Uh, we had a few scholars in mind that we thought would be excellent for the volume, but we also had a few who submitted uh, presidential proposals that we hadn't really considered. So there's a chapter on Zachary Taylor, uh, which is really interesting. There's a chapter on Herbert Hoover. So, you know, we we do have sort of the big names, you know, the Washingtons, the Lincolns, the uh, you know the JFKs, the Reagans, but we also do have, I think, some lesser known presidents that offer a pretty interesting contrast uh, when we look at customs of presidential mourning. Yeah, so it is an interesting mix of presidential funerals that you cover in this volume. 
Um, maybe this is the right time then to ask the question, um, why do we mourn the presidents? What's the purpose of mourning the presidents? Certainly mourning Herbert Hoover looked a lot different than mourning Ronald Reagan, and it looked a lot different than mourning uh, Chester A. Arthur. So why do we mourn the presidents? Um, what's its significance? And, and, and maybe a little bit on, on, on each president themselves or the highlights from this book. Sure. So um, it, it is, it's, it's a fascinating dilemma because here we are, a, a constitutional republic, and uh, you know we engage uh, publicly and privately in the, in the pomp and circumstance of mourning presidents. I, I think you know, it, it's just sort of a, a very basic human evolutionary trait that we want to feel connected to our leaders. We want uh, to know them. Uh, we want to recognize them, acknowledge them, but also acknowledge the institution that they serve in. Um, and, you know, even though we rejected monarchy, you know, we didn't shed our colonial identity overnight. And so uh, part of that transformative process between the revolution, the constitution, the creation of the presidency is that fortunately, and we, of course, the lead chapter in the volume is that we had somebody who was there, who was not only a central figure in the development of all those things, uh, but really set the precedent uh, for the institution of the office of the presidency itself. And so when George Washington dies in 1799, even though he re requests a, a semi-private family funeral, uh, it quickly gets out of hand. Uh, there's people coming from Alexandria. We have citizens, we have Freemasons, we have veterans. And, uh, and then there are also mock funerals held all over the United States celebrating George Washington. And so what we see with Washington is that he really was a political and cultural substitute for uh, King George III and the office of the presidency, a substitution for that, and that this is the highest office in the land, it has to walk a very fine line between uh, it is an elected position, uh, it deserves the respect of citizens and uh, other heads of state, but also you can't go too far into slipping into something more uh, when we start talking about things like cult of personality or authoritarianism. I mean, fortunately, the United States has avoided these things. So. Um, but there is this very interesting fascination by the American people of their presidents, uh, and they invest so much of their time and their energy uh, into who these people were, how they lived, uh, the accomplishments of their administrations. And, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thread that we pull throughout the volume because, on one hand, you think we would reject this type of hero worship, and at the same time, uh, it is uniquely American. Right, it is a way that we sort of set ourselves apart from the likes of France, Great Britain. Um, so, you know, we've had to learn how to create our heroes. We've also had to learn how to celebrate our heroes. And what we see in this volume is that there are some similarities that carry forward over time. Uh, there are a number of different factors that shape this process, including uh, when they die, if they die in office, how they die. And, uh, and also, I think, finally, probably the biggest thing is that different communities of Americans remember presidents differently, and they participate in the process differently. Well, you mentioned a little bit there, uh, the funerals, the mourning process looks a bit different depending on when and how presidents die. We're going to talk a little bit about the long goodbye of President Reagan later today, but can you give us kind of a 30,000-foot view, some of the key points about what does a funeral look like? Or what does the mourning 
look like? What is the significance of grief in that moment when a president dies suddenly? The end of an assassination attempt, um, you know, standing too long in the cold uh, in an inaugural address. I know a bit of a wives' tale, um, or or the the long goodbye that we saw with, for example, President Reagan, mm-hmm. President George H. W. Bush, and and what seems to be what we're seeing now with President Carter. So so tell me a little bit about you know that that dynamic at play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for a lot of the former presidents of the 19th century, these were mostly family affairs. I mean, there, there probably was some community involvement as well, but these were, for the most part, not national events. Now, George Washington is obviously different uh, because he has really captured the nation's imagination between the revolution, uh, his leadership during the Constitutional Convention. He's the first president. I mean, he is, you know, the most iconic American uh, by the close of the 18th century. And when we get further in the 19th century, we don't see a similar outpouring of grief like that until we get to uh, presidents who are currently in office and they die. So uh, Washington's funerals becomes the model for somebody like William Henry Harrison and mm-hmm. Zachary Taylor. This is where we start to see what looks more like a modern-day st- state funeral as we know. Uh, Lincoln's also has has many of the same uh, characteristics in that, um, you know, Lincoln is, is shot tragically uh, on April 14th. He's taken across the street to Peterson House, and he dies the next morning. Uh, Mary Lincoln is not uh, overly involved. She's, you know, obviously uh, in shock and, and horrified by what happened to her husband. And so it, it's primarily Lincoln's cabinet uh, and the War Department that's making a lot of these arrangements to organize a funeral parade, uh, take Lincoln to the Capitol. Uh, he's the first president to lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda. And then uh, to send him back to Springfield for burial, but he, he goes along the same route that he took on the way to Washington for his inauguration. So he stops in a series of cities and uh, he is put in repose in these public buildings so people can pay their respects to Lincoln. So this is where we see, as you mentioned, Uh, Things like communication, transportation, uh, technology changes that allow more people to be involved with the grieving process than ever before. And I think with the Lincoln chapter, it's especially important to note that even though today we might have this universal admiration for Lincoln or near universal admiration for Lincoln, you know, that was not the case in 1865. You know, Lincoln is assassinated on the premise by these co-conspirators with John Wilkes Booth, that by eliminating some of the top leadership of the American government, that the Civil War can continue. And that should tell you that, you know, there were probably quite a few voices who celebrated Lincoln's death. Uh, For African-Americans, which is another one of the features of the chapter, this posed a major question about the end of slavery, which, you know, Lincoln had pushed Congress to pass, which they did. Uh, the, the question of whether or not would this actually be ratified uh, by the states, and is it possible that African Americans could be re-enslaved? I mean, this was a real fear uh, with the uncertainties of Reconstruction. And so, um, you know, it, it kind of points out again that difference between how people are mourned in real time and how we remember them today. And uh, oftentimes, you know, the political, social, economic constraints of that moment are not reflected in, in how we remember today. I wonder if you could jump ahead about 100 years uh, when you talked about 
group of Americans that were concerned about their future, mm-hmm. uh, the African-American community and, and the death of Lincoln. Um, tell me a little bit about if there was some sort of similar dynamic going on mm-hmm. with JFK's passing uh, and the civil rights movement. And uh, was there concern that this, this president, will, you know, now that he's gone, that his work, work would stop? Or, 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 you know, was there kind of confidence that, that his mourning, his legacy would uh, give a boost to their cause of some sort? Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's probably well aware that there's so many different parallels and connections between Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Um, there's, of course, like one of those, and it's like the little note card handouts of one had a secretary named Lincoln and one, you know what I mean? Uh, so, you know, we've seen people purposely make these connections between the two. Obviously, they're both assassinated presidents, but they're not the only ones. Uh, you know, Garfield and McKinley also assassinated in office. So Lincoln's assassination comes at the end of the Civil War. More than 650,000 Americans have been killed. Uh, we have another 4 million people who were recently enslaved, now freed. So in 1865, what we have is not only this national tragedy in terms of lives lost, but also the uncertainties of Reconstruction. You know, what will it look like to uh, you know bring Southern states back into the fold of the Union? How those how will those governments function? Who will help ease the transition for African Americans from enslavement to freedom? And when you fast forward 100 years, you have really sort of these unfinished conversations about African-American civil rights. Kennedy had put forward a civil rights bill in Congress. He obviously had had spoken out several different times, and he gives a very famous speech in June 1963, pushing and advocating for more equal rights and representation for African-Americans. And what we see in that chapter in the book is it's really quite fascinating because when Kennedy is assassinated in November 1963, African-Americans believe that he was killed because he spoke out on civil rights. And and this is a persistent belief that the chapter author, uh, Sharon Davis, makes throughout that even though there have been multiple studies, investigations, the Warren Commission, to name one, and all of these have sort of debunked this idea that John F. Kennedy was killed by a white supremacist, but that conspiracy theory has has still lingered to the day, to this day. And so this belief that he was a martyr for the cause really sort of turns Kennedy into a, into a saint in the African-American community. And Sharon points out uh, in, in many black households, they tended to put up imagery of who the black community saw as sort of the, the people who were really pushing and lending their voice for civil rights and, and African-Americans writ large. And, uh, and she points out that there's quite a few households that have uh, Jesus Christ, have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and have John F. Kennedy. And the inverse of all of this is that Lyndon Johnson, who doesn't really get that same adoration or admiration, he is the one who's really able to take the fallen commander-in-chief. He's able to take Kennedy, and he lifts that mantle up to Congress, and he says, you know, We need to pass this in honor of our slain president. And Johnson is able to very effectively use this national tragedy to push forward on civil rights. Now, he doesn't get as much credit for it, which is sort of the the inverse of it, but it's probably just because 
you know, he's constantly citing Kennedy. This is Kennedy's wishes, that this is what we need to do, that this was Kennedy's vision to make this happen. And I think probably incidentally, by doing that, uh, he further strengthens those relationships and those, uh, you know, those connections between John F. Kennedy and civil rights uh, progress. And in, in, in a way, it sort of cuts him out of, cuts him out of the conversation somewhat because it, it seems like he doesn't receive the same attention or acknowledgement that Kennedy did amongst African-Americans. Well, you raise an interesting point because presidential funerals really mark a moment of baton passing when the president themselves or himself no longer is actively engaged in shaping his legacy, actively engaged in pushing forward what other policy positions you'd like to see implemented, be it while he is in office or in many cases when he's long left office. Mm-hmm. You tell me a little bit about that moment of baton passing. What are the things that go into it? What are the outcomes? Um, how does it shape both the moment and then the extended mourning? Obviously, you're recording a podcast with the Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. In some ways, the mourning still hasn't gone away. Um, mm-hmm. It shapes the work we do today. So please tell me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the, with the more recent presidents, we're seeing, um, you know, former commanders in chief live much longer post-presidential lives. And as part of that, you know, they're usually very actively involved with their own foundations, the creation of their presidential libraries, which more often than not, this is where they are laid to rest. Uh, you know, that's the case with President Reagan. Um, you know, not all of the 20th century presidents follow that rule, but a lot of them do. And, um, you know, they, they do this in effect because this really becomes the place to tell their story, to tell their administration's story. It makes sense that this would, this would be the same place that would have the records, the objects, the artifacts, that this would be a place that citizens from all walks of life could come and learn more about them and their challenges, their achievements, and so, you know, early on in the presidential administration, a president will come up and, and create a state funeral plan in the unexpected event that a president dies while in office. You know, they didn't have that in place for John F. Kennedy. He was, you know, assassinated. There was no set plan designated already. And uh, Mrs. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, asked that her husband's funeral very much mirror Abraham Lincoln's. And so that's where we see a lot of those rituals reused in the 20th century is because, um, you know, her request had a number of different people scrambling to learn exactly what they did for Abraham Lincoln. And she wanted her husband to have the same treatment. Well, since then, there's been a much, much more concerted effort to ensure that presidents while in office have a state funeral plan, but then also after they leave office, they periodically revisit this with staff, uh, with military officials, government officials, so that in the event that something does happen as a former president, that their state funeral and their wishes are are, are known. Obviously, the family is going to have input on this. Uh, I, I think with President Reagan in particular, you know, the plan that he had devised when he left office and then the periodically revisiting. I mean, this would have been left in the hands of, of Nancy primarily, but also other members of the family. And, um, you know, it's, it is sort of this, it's this last opportunity to really have a public facing event with the American people 
And it, it's, it is kind of weird to think of it that way because the president is deceased, right? Uh, the president is uh, being transported uh, across the country to Washington, D.C. There's a procession, they'll lay in state. But a lot of these things are orchestrated and overseen by the president's family. And one of the themes that we pick up in the, in the volume is the importance of family, the first family and former first family members who play a major role in orchestrating and organizing and coordinating these ceremonies because it really is, it is the last opportunity, it's the final goodbye. But also this is where we really see the beginning of, as you mentioned, we start, we open that door a little bit more to this idea of talking about legacy because oftentimes presidents themselves don't want to get into that conversation or they, you know, they only kind of want to touch on it, dabble on it. I think most of them come to terms with the idea of that's not really up for me to decide. Uh, that's sort of the whole point of the presidential libraries and people coming and doing research and scholars and historians talking about my policies, my challenges, my struggles, my, you know, but, and it, in the volume in particular, George H.W. Bush's chapter does this as well, where he said that he didn't really want to talk about legacy. He really thought that that was best left to people on the outside, people who would use his presidential library and they would make judgments. Um, but he himself did not want to be an active participant in that conversation. And I think that speaks a lot to our relationship with the presidents, that even though we elect them to be our leader, this expectation of when they leave the office, they become a private citizen again. In, in theory, they are just like us. You know, maybe there's a few extra perks and uh, few, a few extra niceties that not all of us have. But the idea that I'm just, I'm just one of the people now, and it's going to be this next generation that's going to have to make you know, these types of decisions and shape the discourse about who I was and what my legacy is. Yeah, then he's the call of Reagan dedication of his library where he called on scholars to interpret the past uh, at the library and, and and that's something we hope more of our colleagues will take us up on and join us at the library to help us on that work. You invoked a little bit Reagan's long goodbye, First Lady Nancy Reagan's involvement in the funeral planning. We've just passed the anniversary of Reagan's death. Can you give our listeners some of whom probably were there and present um, for the funeral and the celebration of his life, a sense of the long goodbye that defined Ronald Reagan's passing from um, being very much active on the political stage himself to being essentially an entrenched part of the American memory Mm -hmm. uh, that still continues to affect our nation's politics and our nation's goals and our nation's values. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the chapter on President Reagan was written by Chester Patch, who's, uh, you know, I know he's a good friend of the Reagan Library. Uh, he's, he's done quite a bit of work on President Reagan. And one of the things that I was really struck by with this particular chapter is that it is unlike all of the other chapters in that, you know, Reagan announces his Alzheimer's diagnosis in 1994, which when I was recently at the Reagan Library, I got to see. Uh, so if, if you happen to visit, you can see it. It's written in the president's handwriting. 
And uh, you read it, and it's almost kind of like you can hear him reading it out loud. Um, it's a very, you know, it's a short letter, but it's very powerful. Um, and his decision to share the diagnosis because he wanted people to know not only that he was stepping back from public life, but he wanted people to know that, you know, this was something that him and Nancy were, were facing and that he hoped it would bring more awareness to people who are facing a similar diagnosis, a similar battle. And uh, even sort of in his last public act, you know, there, there is a streak of heroism in it that he decided he wasn't going to be private about it, that he was going to share this with the public because he hoped that this could help benefit people in some way. So even when he's doing this, it's not really about him. It's about the American people. And, uh, you know, President Reagan would live another 10 years until he died in, in 2004. And... You know, the chapter sort of details a lot of the heartbreaking steps along the way. Um, I think most of us are probably familiar with President Reagan, uh, you know, defeating the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're imagining him bringing the American economy back. Uh, we may even, maybe the first memory you have is of this incredible uh, week-long state funeral procession that begins all the way out in California. It comes to D.C., uh, and then it comes back to the Reagan Library for a final sunset service and burial. But this chapter highlights sort of the ups and downs to get to that place. And you're you're just sort of left with a very, uh, a much deeper appreciation, I think, for Nancy Reagan and all that she went through to take care of her husband, you know, in his, in his last battle. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it also speaks to this idea of, how do we remember someone and the spectacle around the actual morning can have a major impact because, you know, people don't remember that side as much of, you know, they know that he had Alzheimer's, but that, I mean, that was about it. And the state funeral was much more about who he was as a person, uh, you know, what his, his humor, um, you know, his belief in optimism. I mean, all these things that I think Reagan probably would have preferred to be remembered for. And, um, you know, I think, again, it, it sort of speaks to like the balance between you want to tell people more about who this person was, you want to shape the public memory of the person in real time. But, you know, also, I think by releasing that statement, letting them know that even in this last act, that he was thinking about the American people, you know, he, he wasn't really, yes, he was stepping back from public life. Yes, that's a decision for him and Nancy to make. But the idea to share it with everyone to be so forthright about it. And then also Nancy to go on and advocate for different types of treatment and federal funding for stem cell research. I mean, all these things are interconnected. And so um, I think it speaks to Reagan's love of America, America the idea, America the Republic. And, uh, and he wanted people to remember that part of him. So we are now at a moment um where we might be looking at another long goodbye. Mm -hmm. um, you've mentioned that presidential funerals, well, they're not all the same. Mm -hmm. Some are bigger and grander and, and have a, uh, an agenda essentially underneath them to, to really shape a legacy and a memory. And others are smaller and more intimate or, or, or less complex. Uh, what might we be, what might we expect for the next presidential funeral 
Mm-hmm. Well, I you know I don't know if President Carter uh, will will he I guess he could live another ten years. Uh, that's how long President Reagan lived after he said goodbye to the public life. Um, I think what we know now is you know President Carter has opted that he is not you know if any issues should arise that he is not going to pursue any kind of medical intervention. And uh, you know he's in his nineties, so you know when he leaves us, we'll see. But I think historically speaking, Carter has always had this reputation as being, uh, you know, one of the greatest, you know, post presidential presidents. Right? He he was very involved with the Carter Center and in championing democracy, human rights, eliminating disease. Uh, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, you know, in 2002. He still volunteers for Habitat for Humanity. He teaches Sunday school. I mean, a really, you know, I think a real example of somebody who practices what they preach and hasn't let the presidency change who they are, what they do, how they do it. At the same time, um, you kind of wonder if perhaps President Carter doesn't want to be known like only as the most uh, successful former president. You know, maybe he's like, well, why not look at my presidency? Uh, because that's what made me a former president anyway. And so it's been interesting when that news was announced, some of the recent biographers of Carter already stepped out and started writing op-eds about how uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency really changed the trajectory of the Cold War. They talked about how he was ahead, you know, on a few different things, including American energy policy that, you know, maybe the American public wasn't quite ready for or Congress wasn't quite ready for. So we're already starting to see sort of these revisionist views bubbling up. And, you know, what Carter decides to do with that will be really interesting because during his actual presidency, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter generally didn't care for all the pomp and circumstance of the presidency. Um, in, in fact, that was a big mo- it was a big part of his election plan was he was going to make government more efficient, more transparent. He was going to cut away with things. I mean, he gets rid of the presidential yacht. Uh, and, and for a while, he was contemplating getting rid of Camp David. Uh, but thank goodness he didn't do that because, you know, you could argue that was his most successful foreign policy achievement was achieved at Camp David. So, uh, you know, but Reagan made those promises that he was going to clean up government. And um, and so he he does these things, but I think at times we we speak of him almost like he wasn't president. And uh, you know, if if it was me, I would probably want to see some kind of balance. You know, you can have the respect for somebody who held the office, and not just focus on their post presidential life. And um, and you know, and also this characterization that his presidency was a failure. I mean, I think that probably is something that bothers him. Um, So we'll see what his state funeral looks like. Will it be more simplified, you know, more along the lines of somebody like a Harry Truman? Truman uh, had all of the uh, ceremony and and rites performed out in Independence, Missouri. A big part of it was because Bess Truman was so, so ill and she was older. And so he didn't want to have, you know, a funeral in Washington, D.C. He decided to keep everything in Missouri. Or are we going to see something very similar to what we saw with George H.W. Bush, which was more of a standard state funeral, where there are multiple worship services in different places, there are ceremonies here in Washington D.C. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Carter picks because what that funeral plan looks like will tell us a lot about 
what Jimmy Carter wanted his final send-off to look like, what were his preferences, and uh, you know what, and how do those reflect the principles that he was adhering to, not only in office but out of office? Well, certainly Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, their legacies often held together in one hand as we look at out success and failures of the presidency and also how handoff and important foreign policy matters and domestic issues has taken place. So to turn it back to Reagan, I think one of the things we like to do here is get your favorites, Mm -hmm. your favorite Reagan quote, your favorite Reagan book, and your favorite Reagan speech. Sure. One way we like to wrap things up. So what do you have for us? Right. Well, I mean, I still think, you know, Lou Cannon's works are are still, I think, some of the best on Reagan. Um, There's a recent biography by Bob Spitz, came out in 2018. I think that was also very good if you're looking for a one-volume. It is a pretty big volume, but a a one-volume account of Reagan. Um, And, you know, I think it also does a good job really covering sort of his life before the presidency, uh, life before politics, because, I mean, there's so much to know about, you can glean a lot about Reagan the person from sort of his early upbringing, you know, the challenges he faced, um, you know, his moving about and, you know, getting into broadcasting. I mean, all of this stuff you can tell really plays a role in shaping what we know today. You know, we call him the great communicator. And that wasn't just something that like he came up with on the spot. You know, he, he had this talent from an early age and he went to all these different places and he honed those skills. Um, and so it's, I think that's probably one of my favorite single volume accounts of, of a biography of Reagan. I mean, it's hard not to pick his speech at the Brandenburg gate. I mean, I know that's probably like everybody picks that one, but you know, a speech is so much more than just what is actually written. Um, sure. a big part of it is the setting, which here he is in, in Berlin and essentially speaking directly to Gorbachev. Uh, but also, I mean, I've, I've read a few different things, a few different accounts of sort of the backstory of how that speech came about, which is fascinating. And uh, all, these, all these different advisors and people at the State Department who were really trying to tell President Reagan, you know, we really should probably tone this back a little bit. You know, we, we, we don't want to, like, cause a scene or we don't want to, you know, offend anyone. And, uh, and, you know, when President Reagan found out this speech depending on the weather, um, the speech was going to be broadcast and it could go as far as Moscow, but it'll certainly reach Eastern Europe. And somebody asked him, well, what do you want to say to them? And he's like, I think tear down the wall. He's like, that's what I want them to hear. He's like, I, I, I wouldn't really, you know, if, if they don't hear any of the other speech, it's fine. But I want to, I want them to hear that statement to the Soviet Union, that challenge. And, um, you know, obviously the things were heading in that direction as is, but to do it in such a public way, in such a symbolic place. Again, I think it speaks to Reagan was very cognizant of optics, stage, performance, and also using those political moments to put, you know, put people and put nations on the spot. As far as my favorite quote, you know, yes, there's a lot of good serious ones, but President Reagan had it <laughs> just a hilarious sense of humor. Uh, often overlooked, I think. Um, you know, people that know Reagan know this, but I mean, he was a jokester, uh, and he and he usually loved to add his own little quips uh, into speeches and into remarks. 
And uh, <clears throat> when he's debating, I think it's Walter Mondale in 1984. And of course, there's all this, you know, all this different press coverage and uh, people are coming out against him running for president again. He's too old. And uh, he has that great line about, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience, <laughs> which, uh, of course, got Wal even Walter Mondale started cracking up. Um, but I mean, it, it just, again, it, like, it speaks to his ability to just off the cuff be able to take something that's a weakness and turn it into a strength. I mean, he, he was phenomenal at that. It, it's an ability that not many politicians have. Well, it's certainly one that's relevant for our forthcoming election. Um, although, <laughs> Right, think, exactly. <laughs> I don't think youth and experience is on the table. Uh, well, Matt, thanks for joining us again, listeners. Once again, please go out, buy the book, Morning the Presidents. It's a fantastic read, good coverage of our whole history. Thank you again, Matt. Thank you, Anthony. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Mm -hmm.